Thank you so much, and good morning. Well, if you haven't done so already, I'd love for you now to take your Bibles or your devices, whichever you're utilizing, turn down with me to Micah chapter 5, and we're going to be exploring this morning verse 2 down through verse 9. It's an amazing passage. It is penned by Micah. And Micah is part of the golden era of prophecies in the 8th century B.C., time period in which Isaiah also delivered his prophecies pertaining to the Messiah. And here what you are going to find as we're exploring these verses together this morning is not only a prophecy regarding the first coming of Christ, but also juxtaposed the second coming of Christ tying together, furthermore, the remnant of the Jewish population that God protects over the course of time, leading to that final point when God and uh, his, his ultimate strategy pulls everything together and, and delivers the Jewish population and all who've put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior uh, from the threats of the evil one and ushers in the new heaven and new earth. So much here in these verses, and we're going to be exploring them together. Passage has been read to us, so let's look to our Lord now in prayer. And our Father, what we want to do is to open our eyes, our minds, our hearts this morning to what it is you have revealed in your word. You know the issues that we're facing. For some, it's been a long week. Maybe it was a long night last night. Maybe there's a wearisome for some, and yet an expectancy because we are looking now into a passage of scripture that kicks off the Advent season as we pause in our series in the Psalms. Lord, there's a richness here. You stand outside of time. You speak for all of time. The past, the present, the future are all in the present tense for you. You understand the future better than we understand our yesterdays. You see it all. You make the connections. You fill in the blanks. You allow us, Father, to be able to draw together the insight from your word with the foresight of what's still to come. So, Father, what we need now is truth to invade our hearts. These moments are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Even at the end of this Thanksgiving weekend where there is so much coming and going, we're pausing now to see Jesus, him only, praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You have, if you have been in Kentucky, been able to pause at the place, a significant place, that marks Abraham Lincoln's birthplace, Hodgenville, Kentucky. And there is this scrap of conversation that is found on a plaque there in that town. 
And this scrap of conversation records the following dialogue. Any news downtown, the village, Esri? Well, Squire McLean's gone to Washington to see Madison swore in. And old Spellman tells me that this Bonaparte fellow has captured most of Spain. What's new out here, neighbor? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all except for a, a new baby born to Tom Lincoln. Nothing ever happens out here in Hodgenville. And when I reflect on that plaque, I can imagine something similar in terms of a dialogue where people around Bethlehem say, nothing. Nothing much happens around here in these parts of Israel. But God sees things differently than we see them. And what I want to do is to take a bit of the Bethlehem story this morning, develop it for us as we launch now into our Advent season, leading towards the Christmas Eve service. And what I want to do is to draw out two significant perspectives that are found in these verses that help us to better understand the Bethlehem story and how it relates to the Calvary story of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, the first flows out of verse 2 down through verse 6. And we're going to put it like this, that as you and I consider, consider how Bethlehem fits into God's messianic plan, we're going to begin now by noting together what we'll call the promised reign of the Messiah. And it's found in verse 2, down through verse 6. We've got to dig in and understand how this is beginning to unfold. Something has gone wrong. The Assyrians now have encircled the city of Jerusalem. You see it there in the prior verse of verse 1. Notice it has the word now. In other words, there's something extraordinary contemporary about what God is saying. It's the third time the word now is utilized. In chapter 4, we would find in verse 9, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? The critical question of the entire book. A second now. In chapter 4, verse 11, Now many nations are assembled against you, dealing with the now and the not yet. The third now. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, it's as if God is saying to all of the people in Jerusalem, Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And they can see this massive force of Assyrians that have encircled the city of Jerusalem at this point. Is this it? Is God's promise null and void? No. God's promise is not dependent upon anything except God's faithfulness. Watch carefully what unfolds. Now, 
Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel. Who's the judge of Israel? The king. So now what they're doing at this point is that they are in the process of capturing the king. Smite him on the cheek, which is always a sign of derision. And whenever a, an invading force is about to take captive the, the king of the land that they're conquering. But I want you to begin by noticing with me the first coming of the Messiah. Everything has gone wrong, you see. But, but, that's the way God works. But God demonstrates going wrong, but God breaks in. So now what does God say? He says, but you, O Jerusalem, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, camp on that for just a moment. I'm fascinated with the fact that he doesn't merely say, but you, O Bethlehem, but rather, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Why? Because there was more than one Bethlehem in Israel. Eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ being born in Bethlehem, this prophecy is so specific, he even tells us which Bethlehem we're talking about. Not really Bethlehem to the north, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And this is the region, you see, that would have stood out in the thought processes of the Israelite. And the house of bread gave us the one who is the bread of life. Because in John chapter 6, of verse 35, when there was pushback against Jesus Christ, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He brings satisfaction and fulfillment to life. Bethlehem. There's this extraordinary history tied to Bethlehem, Ephrathah. It's the place, as we point out in our inserts this morning, where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, was buried nearby it's the place where Ruth, a Moabitess, a Gentile, came to Bethlehem, married Boaz, and became God's messianic plan, global impact for this world. But also what's interesting to me is that there was a time when Samuel was sent by God on a mission. He had to find a replacement for King Saul. Where would he go? God sent him to Bethlehem. And there's this little town, Bethlehem, that Samuel arrives in, and, and he begins to look at all the sons of Jesse that are paraded before him, and he's assuming it's got to be one of these that's going to become the next king, but God continuously says, no, one is left, the one who's overlooked. He's out in the feet king, and David becomes the means by which ultimately the ultimate David enters this world, Jesus Christ, born where? In Bethlehem. But Bethlehem seems to be an overlooked place. And David was a rather overlooked son. 
But God delights in taking the overlooked aspects of life and doing something so significant that there is no question this was of God and no one else who could engineer such a matter as this. So God does not begin by countering the massive troop sizes of the Assyrians by saying, but you, O Jerusalem, but rather, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. You're going there, but that's too little to be among the clans of Judah. But didn't David look rather little in the eyes of a Goliath? And furthermore, when you and I look at the way in which God chose to work with Gideon, God had Gideon downsize his troops to a significant minority in terms of the overall troop operations that God could have at his disposal so that nobody but nobody but God and God alone could get the glory, certainly not the troops. So now God does not say, um, but you, O troops of Jerusalem, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, because there's a connection, you see. There's a connection between Bethlehem and Jerusalem in these verses. Flip back a page or so in your Bible. Check out chapter 4. And in chapter 4, in verse 8, there are two significant sites, S-I-T-E-S, that God is targeting for his messianic plan, his Christ plan. In verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock, is where he begins. But where is the tower of the flock? Those who lived in Bethlehem knew that this is where the tower was to be found, just outside the vicinity of Bethlehem. Furthermore, after the comma, the hill of the daughter of Zion, well, the second site, hill of the daughter of Zion, literally means a stronghold. It's the Acropolis on the eastern slope of Jerusalem. What God is now doing is that he is connecting in that one verse, Bethlehem, to Jerusalem. You and I are traveling in Israel. I've used this as imagery occasionally on a Christmas Eve service night. On the screen... There are two way towards Jerusalem. I remember seeing those signs and I thought, no, God does not set up a contrast. Rather, God sets up a connection between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And it's going to be in Jerusalem that David will set up his reign, but it is in Bethlehem that David is born. It is in Bethlehem that Jesus Christ is born. It's going to be Jerusalem where Jesus Christ returns. And now you begin to see how this entire messianic plan begins to unfold in front of your very eyes so that in the very next verse of chapter 4, when you get to verse 9, they've got a question. Now, why do you cry aloud? Just don't go looking for him in Jerusalem. You better start off. In Bethlehem. Meanwhile, fast forward, and there are 
There are these individuals called wise men who are coming from the east, and they're looking for this one to be born king of the Jews. Where do they go? Jerusalem. What do the scribes say? You're going to have to go to Bethlehem. But interestingly, they knew that intellectually. The scribes did. But they never checked it out personally. They didn't go themselves. It's possible to have a lot of informational aspects to the Christian faith, but not a personal relationship to the God who is the author of the Christian faith. So now you've tied it together. Not direction signs going in an opposite direction. Signs of the Israel population, but at the same time it's from you who shall come forth for me. In other words, this entire messianic plan, this entire Christ plan is for God. God's purposes. Everybody is asking, what's in it for me and what am I going to get for Christmas? And God is saying, this is what I'm concerned with, is how this fits into my design for you, not your design for yourself. From you shall come forth for me, one. Isn't it interesting? He does not use the word king, who is to be ruler in Israel. Why? Because in that time period, everybody was fixated upon kings. And he wanted to distinguish this particular one from all the secular kings of the surrounding nations. Therefore, he utilizes the word ruler from you, you see, is one. Ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days and I smiled because the Hebrew word here for everlasting olam is used in connection with God it means from eternity on it's an unspecified duration being described here then we see here therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return. Bethlehem, God has a way of choosing something that might seem rather overlooked and uncomfortable to achieve his purposes for his glory. Bernie May, he'd been eventually a U.S. director of Wycliffe Bible Translators, Bernie May. We're told in his life story, three days before Christmas, he was on a flight to deliver emergency medical supplies to a remote Indian tribe. He'd been serving for less than three years as a missionary pilot with his family in the Amazon, anxious to complete his mission, return to his family. Five-hour flight into the region had been uneventful, landed his pontoon plane safely in the river, ministered to the needs of the village, but it was raining. During the night, decided that he was going to have to stay put. Quote, it was Christmas Eve. Night was descending there in the jungle. No way that I could get back home. Back in Pennsylvania, my folks would have returned from church. Mom would have gotten the turkey ready. Outside, the snow would be falling past the window. Big tree with a star on top, standing, as always, in its corner. 
but here, but here. My wife, the children be sitting at home alone. Now, they knew by now, because I had been able to radio back, that I was stuck in the jungle, and I wouldn't be home for Christmas. Oh, God. I'm in the wrong place, he said. I'm so far from home. That night, under my mosquito net, I had a sense that God wanted to address these feelings within No, there were no angels, no bright light. But as I lay there in my hammock, desperately homesick, all that would cross my mind were these words, my son. This is what Christmas was all about. Jesus left heaven. And on Christmas morning, he woke up in the wrong place in your estimation. A stable in Bethlehem. Christmas for him meant leaving home, not going home. My only begotten son did not come home for Christmas. He left home to die for you. Home for Christmas. You have just tied together the strategy that God had laid out for the first coming of the Messiah, but he's not done. Because now you pick it up, you see, in verse four. And lo and behold, what we see is that he now has juxtaposed the first coming of the Messiah in verses two and three with the second coming of the Messiah beginning in verse four down through verse six. Still to come. And here we find these words, and he shall stand. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Look at what he's talking about here. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's going to take his stand in that final day. He's going to shepherd his flock. And now the reader, the mind goes back then to David, who would be shepherding his flock at the time in which Samuel came along and chose him to be the one to be anointed as the ruler of Israel. And now they're connecting past, present, and now future as this one takes his stand, shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And you're walking in the hallway if you haven't gotten your gifts from Amazon. And there you are as you're making your way in a particular mall. You hear songs such as, Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. But is anybody paying attention? in the buzz and hub of conversations in the malls of life. Because once you identify him as Lord, everything changes. Your beliefs, your values, your priorities, your decisions. Everything gets reversed when we are no longer Lord and he is. 
And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. And while everybody is all of a sudden cocooning and contracting with regard to the Assyrians that are making their way around Jerusalem, he's expanding and he's saying that this is going to be to the ends of the earth and he shall be their shalom. He shall be their peace. And they've got to take a deep breath as they're pondering just what it is he's got to say at this point. 1948, Jerusalem was also under siege. Some things just never changed, do they? And it was an Arab-Israeli war, and the Israeli Palmach force had seized Castel. It was an Arab village that controlled the western approach to where? Of course, Jerusalem. The historian tells us defense of the village was turned over to 70 men of the Jerusalem Haganah. The Arabs regrouped, counterattacked under their leader, Kamel Irakat, their leader. 400 men screaming with him, Allah Akbar, God is great, as they swept down from, from the quarry buildings and eventually into the outskirts of the village. But then problems began. The Arabs were exhausted. Most had been without food for 24 hours. Time out. While they send for the village women to bring food to the attack again, they move. But halfway through their assault on the village, they ran out of ammunition. No one had thought to procure an adequate supply. Time out again, while couriers go off to buy ammunition. But after they obtained ammunition, Jewish ammunition found Erekat, their leader. There was only one medic, one first aid kit available to the 500 villagers. And the medic insisted Erekat be carted off to where? Jerusalem for treatment. The oppositional leader, Erekat, is being brought into Jerusalem to be treated by medically oriented Jews. Erekat knew that without his presence, the assault would fizzle, for his villagers always looked for the charismatic leader for their inspiration, and there was no other leader and Castel remained in Jewish hands as the Arab force gradually dwindled and left the field. And when I read that story, I thought of what comes next in the Micah account. When the Assyrian in verse 6, rather 5, comes into our land, treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. This is typical in Jewish writings. They always go the X plus one factor when they want to bring added emphasis to what's taking place. Seven plus one, eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. The land of Nimrod at its entrances. Nimrod? That's Babylon. In other words, what God is saying, after the Assyrians will come the Babylonians. And all of this is addressed, you see, in God's sovereign purposes of bringing Messiah into this world. The land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads into our border. You tie all that together 
the outcome is assured. God's in control. You've got a first coming in two and three. You've got a second coming in four through six. You pull the pieces. You connect the dots. It's not Bethlehem one way and Jerusalem the other way, but rather a a convergence of the two where everything begins to come together to bring glory to God's name. But now there's something more. If verses 2 through 60 with the, with the promised reign of the Messiah, there's something more. Because second of all, in verse 7 down through verse 9, there's the protected remnant of the Messiah. Look for the word Remnant. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And God is allowing for the fact that they will be dispersed, but someday reunited. I love the story of Howard Sashar who tells in his book, A History of the Jews in America, of a young American Jew, quote, Even so, there is no equivocation in Adam Meyer's tone, none whatever in the boy's choice of words. Israel is my home, he replies. There, it's there I know where I am. And as he speaks, his father and grandfather Listen thoughtfully, saying nothing. For you see, Jews at this point in history are scattered, but they're scattered to someday be regathered, and they're already making their way back. 1948 is not an accident in time. It's an appointment with time as God sets the strategy for the reunification of the Jewish people throughout the world. But back to the text. You're up now to verse 8. And God has been protecting the Jewish people. First go around, the evil one tried to keep Messiah from coming into this world. And so he uses a Pharaoh who tries to have baby boys put to death. He, you know, there is this evil one strategy of having Haman who tries to have the Jewish people annihilated. And then furthermore, there's Herod, Herod the Great, who tries to keep this, this coming king from being able to take his throne, not to be. Everything's thwarted. But if the evil one can't thwart the first coming, he'll then try to thwart the second coming. So he tries to have, through means such as Hitler, the Jewish population annihilated because the Jews are part of the strategy for the second coming of Christ. But you see, God has not once, twice plus spoken of the remnant. He's protecting the remnant. And they shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down, tears in pieces, there's none to deliver, pointing toward that future day of Armageddon. And we ponder the significance of all this. And then we think about what what the prime minister of Israel said back in 1949, 
after Israel had regained or gained a sense of statehood, Israel's policy consists of bringing all Jews to Israel. And we are still, we are still at the beginning. But there's a longing in the heart, first coming, second coming, to pull all the strategy that God has before us together. There is the story that's told by the Pulitzer Prize winner, um, Bernard Malamud, in the book, The Fixer. He puts himself in the story of the time in which he went to Russia to trace his own roots because that's where his Jewish parents had grown up. But he was thrown in prison. And there he puts on a prayer shawl but doesn't pray. He doesn't quite know where to go, but he is deeply moved when he begins to look into the Newer Testament, picks up the story about the crucifixion narrative, and now the words... Jesus cried out for help to God, but God gave no help. There was a man crying out in anguish in the dark, but God was on the other side of the mountain. Christ died, and they took him down. The fixer wiped his eyes, and afterwards he thought, if that's how it happened, and that's part of the Christian religion, and they believe it, how can they keep me in prison, knowing that I am innocent? Why don't they have pity and let me go? And what he's really doing is taking the Psalm 22 question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And found the answer when Jesus died on the cross to save us, you see, from our sins. And you're back to the text. Because there you've now tied together Bethlehem with Calvary. You've tied first coming to second coming. You are seeing that God takes something small to achieve something great, and so then in verse 9, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, he says of the Messiah. All your enemies shall be cut off. Thus he's saying, don't look for the troops in Jerusalem to protect Israel. Look for the Messiah who eventually come to Jerusalem and set up his reign to bring glory to his name. Anything happening here? Nothing. Nothing at all. Except for a newborn baby, Tom Lincoln's. Nothing ever happens out here, it was said. Bethlehem. Anything happening here? Nothing much. Except for the fact that there's this man named Joseph woman named Mary. Decree of Caesar made their way here to Bethlehem. Baby born. Don't let the highway signs take you in opposite directions. Bethlehem, Jerusalem is not a contrast. It's a connection. It's part of the messianic plan. Let's stand together. My word, there is so much here, and we have just scratched the surface. In succinct verses, you went out of your way to describe just which Bethlehem it is, eight centuries prior to Jesus entering in with the guidance of a Mary and a Joseph. 
eight centuries prior, you've identified first and second comings. Eight centuries prior, you've connected Bethlehem to Jerusalem. You have now helped us understand how past and present connects to the future. It's all part of your sovereign plan. If there's one here or more, either physically present or watching online right now, who's grappling with basic questions such as, what's the plan? What's the purpose? Is there meaning to life? I'm so confused. I pray that they'll take the direction signs of life, make the connection. Jesus born in Bethlehem to die on Calvary. May he or she put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus and him alone for salvation. This will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.